0: Please have your Bible open in Psalm 40. In this run-up to this Christmas season, as we remember the coming of Christ into the world, this is a very opportune time to consider these verses, speaking as they do so clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that might not be quite so clear to you, perhaps at first reading, but that's what all this is about. And in these verses, Christ, the servant of God, is made clear and made known. Now, one of the reasons that many people misunderstand the Old Testament, one of the reasons why even Christians contend to dismiss the Old Testament as not really being that relevant today is because they fail to see that the whole of the Bible contains God's gradual revelation of himself and of his will and his purposes. And some perhaps might assume that once you get to the New Testament, you no longer need the Old Testament. So there's not much point in reading it and there's even less point in having someone preach from it. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to disagree with you. For example, you see, it's as you are confronted with the horror of God's judgment and condemnation of sin in the Old Testament where it is displayed so graphically Only then do you truly begin to appreciate the wonder of the depth of the grace and mercy that God has actually shown you in His salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is not a little thing. It is huge. It's not just a little nicety that you can Tack on to your life to make you feel a bit better. Some Christians find it hard to reconcile the God of anger and judgment that they see in the Old Testament with the God of love and grace as they see it in the New Testament. At least that's their reading of it. Well, that again is down to a poor understanding of the Bible. God's mercy and grace is no less in the Old Testament than it is in the New. And God's mercy and grace can be found repeatedly in the Old Testament. For example, think of how God sent a preacher, Jonah, to one of the most wicked cities in Old Testament days, Nineveh, preaching repent and come to the Lord. And they did. And they were saved. That horrendous, wicked city saved by God's grace. Think of the sins of King David. But in confession of his sins, this deceiving, adulterous murderer, cried out to God for mercy and grace and for God's saving, transforming, renewing power and God granted it to him. And as well as that, God's anger against sin is no less in the New Testament than what we read in the Old. Think of the descriptions of hell that Jesus gives in the Gospels. A place of eternal burning and torment. That's how he describes it. Think of his words of burning condemnation against the scribes and Pharisees. And as we mentioned this morning, think of the judgment that fell upon Ananias and Sapphira because of their deception in the church as they dropped down dead in front of the gathered assembly. And the most important thing of all about the Old Testament is that it is constantly speaking of and pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it shows us that the whole unfolding story is about this triune God, these three who individually are God, yet who are but one God, and the people that they, He, will save from the perils of their sin. That's what the whole Bible's about. So rather than dismissing the Old Testament as being of no consequence now that you have the New, you should actually relish reading the Old Testament. Because with the blessing and the help that the New Testament Scriptures give you, you can see Christ in all kinds of places in the Old Testament with a clarity that probably even the people who wrote it didn't have. You can see it now. You really are very blessed to be able to read your Old Testament with the New Testament sat alongside it. Now, one of the ways that we can see Christ in the Old Testament, because there are many ways in which we can see Christ in the Old Testament, one of them is that when we come to the book of Psalms, We discover that many of the words that are written down, and this is most particularly true about the things that David wrote, whilst they speak of David's own situation and experience in his own day, it's saying more than that. The things that David writes down are also the words of Christ. And they're also speaking of Christ's own experience and testimony. So one of the easiest and clearest examples of that is Psalm 22. When David writes down his experiences in vivid language and yet he's also foretelling Christ's experience on the cross, beginning with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, David said it first, but it's Christ who's best remembered for saying those words. And then later on, as we read through Psalm 22 I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. There's Christ, not a single bone broken on the cross, but many pulled out of shape. The spear thrust into his side as blood and water flow out. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's remarkable. That was David's own experience and testimony. But he speaks so clearly, so vividly concerning Christ. And here in Psalm 40, we find the same thing occurs. These words are not just true of David. They're true of Christ. And that actually is the more important thing to grasp. As I mentioned this a few months ago, these verses that we're looking at this evening, as we've just read, are recorded in Hebrews chapter 10, and there they are clearly accredited as being the words of Christ recorded in the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament is so important and relevant still. So with Psalm 40 in front of you, let's have a look at verses 6, 7, and 8. And let's see how Christ, the servant of God the Father, is revealed and made known to us in this portion of God's Word. Uh, Three things. First of all, the future and perfect sacrifice. The future and perfect sacrifice. Now, the writer to the Hebrews, of course, is making the point that the Old Testament is all looking forward to Christ And that the ceremonial law, with all of its sacrifices and offerings, was only ever intended to be a temporary illustration and picture pointing forward to the once-for-all work that Christ would accomplish at Calvary. And the hope of all Old Testament believers was not in the pictures, but in the Christ of whom they spoke. Salvation for Old Testament believers did not come through the temporary pictures. Salvation for Old Testament believers came just as your salvation has come to you through the final sacrifice of Christ of whom those pictures spoke and to which they were pointing. And that's what Christ is saying through David in Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, hang on a minute, Ian, hang on. It was God who introduced these Old Testament laws. It was God who established them So why would he do that and then say he does not desire or require them? That seems a bit strange. He's put them in place, but then he says, I don't need those things and I don't want those things. Why Why would he do that? That doesn't seem to hang right somehow. The point is this. There was never anything effectual or effective in those Old Testament sacrifices. Never. They never actually did anything. And so in that sense, they play no role in the salvation that God has for His people. The blood of animals is of no effect whatsoever. We read that in Hebrews. Well, why have it in the first place then? Well, you and I are perpetually dull of heart and mind. And so were God's Old Testament people. And so God in His grace gave them this system which provided them with an ongoing reminder of what was required. An ongoing reminder of what the solution to sin is. But there was no satisfaction for sin in these things. Those actual sacrifices in themselves are of no value before God. They're they're a picture for us to show us what's coming, to show us what's needed. But these actual things that were taking place, they don't actually do anything. The blood of an animal does not bring the washing from sin and the cleansing of conscience that you and I need. And so, in that regard, they actually serve no purpose before God. It's what they represent, it's what they symbolize, it's what they foreshadow. That's the important thing. And God accepts those Old Testament sacrifices on the basis of what they represent. He accepts those because God knows that this is coming and will happen. And it's actually this that Christ will do that is dealing with the sin of Old Testament believers. It's the future sacrifice that is going to deal With the people's sin that it's really all about. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has come into the world to be that sacrifice for sin. And so you see, secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed here as the promised servant. He is the promised servant. It says in the middle of verse 6, My ears you have opened. And then at verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. He's the promised servant. Now precisely how are these verses speaking of Christ? And exactly how are they speaking of Him as the promised servant of God who will do that which God has sent Him to do? Well, we have a problem in the translation of a word in the Hebrew in verse 6 where it says, My ears, you have opened. Because if you read the Hebrew, the word that you have in your Bible that says opened, it actually means digged, digged, dug out is what it means. And it alludes back to something that we read in the book of Exodus, this digging of the ear. And it's found in Exodus chapter 21. And it concerns servants, slaves of masters, who have been given the opportunity to take their freedom and to be a servant or a slave no longer. Now, slavery today is viewed as such an evil, you cannot possibly, probably imagine a slave who would turn down the opportunity for freedom. but slavery isn't necessarily a bad thing. Not necessarily. It normally is because we live in such a wicked, sinful world and people who have slaves will abuse them and exploit them and treat them awfully. And under those circumstances, slavery is a horrible thing. It's a dreadful thing. It's a terrible wickedness. But it doesn't have to be that way. So here's a slave who has a master who is kind and fair and just and the slave and his household have a lovely place to live. They have good food and he receives decent wages for an honest day's work and he's actually very happy there. This is a good place to be. This is a good place to live. I have a very lovely master. And then he's offered his freedom. And if he walks out the door, he walks out with nothing. And he's got his freedom, but he's got nothing else. And he looks at the options. And he thinks to himself, I'd rather stay here. Life is good. I'm a slave, yes, but life is good with a master like this why would I go and he says to his master I'm going to turn down your offer of freedom thank you I want to stay here I'm happy here this is wonderful here I'll be yours for the rest of my life and the master says okay come here and he does something which is a bit strange it's all there in Exodus 21 he takes him over to the doorpost He puts his earlobe against the door and he pushes an awl through his ear into the doorpost and makes a mark in his ear. And that's the sign that this slave has been offered freedom but has chosen slavery. Why? Because he has such a wonderful master who is a joy and a delight to work for. Oh, that all slavery was like that, hey? Actually, if you're a Christian, that is the position you're in, you know. It is. You're a slave. But what a master. No one like him. And so here is Christ picturing himself in Psalm 40 my ears, you have digged. What's the picture here? Here's the picture of the Son of God before His Father in free and joyful submission. And His ear is pierced to do forever His Father's will. The glad, obedient, obedient, promised, willing servant of God the Father. Why? That he might come into this world to be your saviour. Isn't that a glorious picture? That's what we remember this Christmas time. These Old Testament sacrifices are about to be relegated to history, never more to be required. It won't be a problem or an issue with God when those sacrifices in Jerusalem come to an end. It won't even be a problem or an issue to God when in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem is torn down and 2,000 years later is still not being rebuilt and it never needs to be. Because it was never those things God was looking for. It was never those things God was looking towards. It was the things that they were pointing to. It's the things that those systems were signposting that God was interested in. And over and over, in the Old Testament, we have this promise of Messiah. This promise of God's salvation has been given. We were thinking last week about the work of God's redemption plan in the world. Do you remember Jesus in Luke 24 after his resurrection and he's walking down the Emmaus Road with two disciples? And what does he do? He opens up to them the Old Testament Scriptures and shows them all the things that spoke of him. That would change your mind about the Old Testament if you'd been on that road with them that day. Oh, you'd love the Scriptures then. With the arrival of Christ, that true and lasting sacrifice has come in the form of the willing servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now that the genuine has come, the temporary illustrations can be done away with. For years now, all around Liverpool, you'll see building sites Luxury apartments. They're always luxury ones, aren't they? I've never yet seen the one that says moderately nice apartments coming here. Would anyone like a moderately nice apartment? They're always luxury, aren't they? Whatever they are like. Luxury apartments. And as a picture. That's what they're going to look like. Ooh. Now, it's not the poster that they're trying to sell the building. It's not the poster that the new occupier of that building desires or wants. The poster is simply letting you know what you can look forward to. What do they do with the posters once the new building is completed? They take them down. Why? You don't need the poster anymore. There's the building. And it looks 10 times. Well, hopefully... Looks 10 times better than the poster, unless it's the royal hospital. And so here it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need those things anymore. And actually, that was never what God desired or required for you. It was all about him, the promised one, the promised servant. And thirdly as we close the willing servant. The willing servant. Verse 8 of Psalm 40. I delight to do your will. O oh my God. What? Even Calvary? Even Calvary. Your law is within my heart." Now, when Jesus was in His earthly ministry, we hear Him say these words from John's Gospel, I do not seek my own will. Do you know anyone for whom that's true? I do not seek my own will. I have never, ever sought my own will. Do you know anyone like that, honestly? It was true of christ i seek the will of my father who sent me i've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me the lord jesus christ you see was perfectly in tune with his father and these two phrases on the one hand Delighting to do God's will and the law being in his heart, those two phrases are inextricably linked. There's an important lesson to learn and see there. Delighting to do God's will, God's law being in your heart. Are you a Christian? And you want to do God's will. We hear a lot about understanding and knowing God's will, don't we? How do I know God's will? What's God's will for me? Let the law of God be in your heart. The word of God so infused within Christ's heart, so much a part of him, so controlling him and guiding him that living any other way is inconceivable. The law of God being in your heart, delighting to do God's will. The two go together. They go hand in hand. And that's how it's to be for the Lord's people. We are those who are following after Christ's example, aren't you? This needs to be you. This can be you. This should be you. The Word of God so infused in your heart, so much a part of you, controlling and guiding you, that you delight to do God's will. You can do no other. Such is the work of God's Word deep within you. And then you discover that you too will be a willing servant of God. May he help us all to be so.